1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Paul Wirth, and I am a host on the East European Studies channel of the New Books Network, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity today to speak with Dr. Nadezhda Kizenko. Dr. Kizenko is a professor at SUNY Albany and a leading scholar of Russian history and Russian Orthodoxy in particular. She has published countless articles and also two major books, first, A Prodigal Saint, Father John of Kronstadt and the Russian People, that was with Penn State University Press in the year 2000, which won accolades and was translated into Russian. And second, Good for the Souls, A History of Confession in the Russian Empire with Oxford University Press, which just appeared in April of this year, 2021. It is that second book uh, about which we'll be talking today. From the moment that czars as well as hierarchs realized that having their subjects go to confession could make them better citizens as well as better Christians, the sacrament of penance in the Russian Empire became a political tool, a devotional exercise, a means of education, and a literary genre. It defined who was orthodox and who was other. Good for the Souls brings Russia into the rich scholarly and popular literature on confession, penance, discipline, and gender in the modern world. And in doing so, opens a key window onto church, state, and society. And so I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about this book with Professor Nadezhda Kizenka. Welcome, Dr. Kizenka.
2: Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Paul.
1: Well, you're certainly welcome. Uh, Let's go right into the uh, interview because this is a really interesting book. And there's really a lot that it can tell us, I think, about Russia, about sacraments, about individuality, uh, about people just generally. So what I'd, I guess I'd start by asking, uh, my sense is that orthodoxy offers or features a number of different uh, religious sacraments. And so I wonder why you've chosen to focus on confession specifically. Um, what can we see if we look at this particular sacrament uh, that we don't see, for example, if we look at others?
2: Well, Paul, in some ways, that is actually as lowball a question as you can ask, because Orthodoxy does indeed feature a number of different sacraments, like Catholicism, like Lutheranism, like Anglicanism. And it's true that the number can vary, like Catholicism has seven, Anglicanism has two, Lutheranism has three because Martin Luther thought that confession was okay, which was great for me. But I think what's interesting is not the number. I think what's interesting is confession specifically, because in the other sacraments, like let's take marriage, they're interesting for all sorts of other reasons, like property. Whereas the other sacraments, especially in Russia, especially for so-called cradle Orthodox, Baptism and burial usually happened when you were either too little or too dead to have anything to say about it. Ordination happened to relatively few people. Tonsure happened to to relatively few people. Whereas confession is interesting because from the time that you were seven, and went to your first confession. And By the way, communion was less of a marker because in Russia, in Orthodoxy, you were brought to communion for the time that you were baptized as a baby. So there's no conscious first communion in Russian Orthodoxy for anyone who's not a convert, whereas there is a first confession. Confession is a sign that you have reached spiritual responsibility. So I would ask you, in fact, why any sacrament but confession? I mean, let's face it, confession is the most exciting of all the sacraments because it's hot, because it has a hint of the secret, the worst, speaking the unspeakable. There's a reason that Russian priests' handbooks maintain that confession was the most difficult of all the sacraments and the one requiring the most art. In one handbook that I used, 30 pages were devoted to discussing confession, more than four times the space that it gave to the others. So I would actually turn your confession around. I mean, I would turn your question around. When we look at confession, we see everything that we can't see anywhere else.
1: Well, I will confess that you've made a compelling (laughs) case on behalf of uh, Confession Um, it really seems striking based on what you have to say that it, one can see that it really does uh, distinguish itself in all of the ways that you've described. Um, it's, it's breadth of applicability, uh, the consciousness with which one was expected to engage in it. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more than having made the case for confession as such, what exactly is confession? I mean, a lot of people I think have a kind of image probably based on, uh, cinema and maybe Catholic experience uh, in our country here in the United States. But one thing it seems to be that you try to show in this book is that this sacrament is part of a larger complex of behavior uh, and ritual. So what are the pieces of that complex and how do they all fit together?
2: Before talking about the various pieces, I think it's important to stress that the reason that confession was important and the reason that all of those other pieces were important was because communion was so important. The epistle that's read in many Christian churches on Holy Thursday, the day before Good Friday, 1 Corinthians 11.23-something, reminds Christians that communing unworthily is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that you had to be worthy of communion. And this, by the way, of course, is in no way uniquely Orthodox. Many Reformed churches also take seriously the notion that ministers need to examine those who wish to partake of the Lord's Supper and protect or note the air quotes, (laughs) the table from unworthy communicants, or to protect the faithful from unworthy communing. So the idea is to prepare and to focus, to literally clean up your act. Now, what does this actually mean? The idea is that you have to become a worthy receptacle for Jesus's body and blood. And you do that by literally cleaning up your act. You sober up, You try to purify yourself by several days of fasting, which of course includes abstinence from sex and alcohol and meat and fish and dairy, et cetera, and going to church morning and night for several days to focus before confession. In confession, you own up to your sins and you repent for them. And depending on how grave your sins are or how truly remorseful you are, you may or may not be assigned a penance. So I think those are the pieces that you're talking about, unless you want to hear about something else.
1: No, no. Well, I mean, there's much more. I'm I'm certain to, to talk about here, but that's uh, really, really very compelling. I mean, that uh, the component of communion, in particular, that these th- these two things being fundamentally linked, and everything that you've said makes uh, makes great sense. Um, I guess maybe sort of developing the initial question, though, I would ask. Uh, I, I would note uh, that confession seems to be remarkable as a ritual that is in, at once intensely individual. Uh, in precisely the way you described earlier, the penitent is expressing regret for actions and thoughts that only uh, he or she could really know about, and also distinctly communal uh, precisely in light of this complex of behavior and ritual uh, that you 've begun to talk about here. How should we think about that balance between the kind of deeply individualistic character of commun- uh, of a confession on the one hand and its uh, communal character on the other?
2: okay. I'm really glad that you asked that because I think here is where Hollywood and Netflix and Agatha Christie and Albert Hitchcock have messed us all up because they tend to focus on people who've done something really, really bad, usually murder, but it doesn't have to be. And they confess it. And so then can the priest say something about it? So it's intensely personal And it has to do with something spectacular. So I think that we've actually lost sight of the utterly routine aspect of confession and communion, especially in Russia. The ideal in the Russian Empire, which the most pious practiced, was to go to confession and communion four times a year. Now, you might say to yourself, if let's say you know the Catholic context, you might think, okay, four times a year, Easter, Pentecost, Corpus Christi, All Saints. In the Orthodox case, wrong. <laughs> it's not those four. I mean, like, of course, yeah, okay, Easter, the Feast of Feasts, the one with a long Lenten period of penitential preparation before. We know all this from other Christian contexts. Now, what they did in Russia, though, and in some other countries, um, some other Orthodox countries, was to apply the same preparation principle. For any time you went to communion, any time you went to communion was so solemn, so fraught with requirements, which we talked about before, Mm -hmm. that this is such a break with a normal life that it couldn't happen more than a few times a year. Like you can't put your life on hold to that extent more than a few times a year. So it made sense to do it when you and everyone else is already putting your lives on hold, which is to say during the four fasting periods of the Orthodox Church, the fast before Easter, yes, but also the fast before Christmas, the fast before St. Peter and Paul's on June 29th, and the short two-week fast before Dormition on August 15th. So that is when those four occasions are when the most pious people want to confession and communion for most other people it was once a year before easter or maybe at one other point like for example the romanovs and much of the court went twice during the first week of lent and again on holy thursday school children went with their classmates in the first or third weeks of lent and soldiers went with their regiments also usually in the first few weeks of lent so basically on the one hand you're talking about your own sins and examining yourself, but you're, but it also makes a difference when you're going with like your co-workers who all get the same day off so that you can go, or with your classmates, or with your regiment. So it's also an occasion of bonding.
1: Interesting. So I, I, I mean, I understand that confession obviously is a deeply private thing, right? Um, and there's this idea of the seal that things can't be transmitted. But I'm wondering by the priest, you know, beyond, uh, beyond the confessional but i'm wondering do we know anything about what people actually confessed to i mean one can i suppose imagine i'm i, I asked this because you had talked about the kind of spectacular character of the crimes that often appear in uh, sort of hollywood or popular depictions of confession but to the extent that uh that confession has this sort of routine character in exactly the way that you, you're talking about what are the kind of uh, routine sins and crimes that people, or do we know about this at all because these actually were, in some sense, secret?
2: Right. I mean, in, in most cases, we have very little idea of what people actually said. But as um, already by the end of the 16th century, Muscovites are thinking about uh, why confession is increasingly important and what source we do have similar to sources that we have, let's say, in Ireland, are penitentials or the list of questions that are supposedly asked at confession. I see. And if we look at those lists, we can see that they change over time. And actually, in in Russia, they become more and more detailed. So there's different variations for women and men, different variations for different occupations and social classes, like boyars and judges. But there's no one Printed rubric. In fact, for a long time, there's no print. (laughs) Um, And it's incredibly diverse before the 17th century. It's diverse. There's lots of different sources. There's lots of different manuscript sources. And um, it's impossible to know for sure what anybody was actually asking or actually saying.
1: Yeah, that uh, must have been a source of great frustration to you, at least at points, while you were doing this research.
2: Uh, no, there's a reason I started in the 17th century.
1: <laughs> uh, well, actually, that leads to the, the actually precisely the next question I wanted to ask, and that is uh, uh, well, I'm noting that your book begins in the 17th century. Correct? The, right. <laughs> correct. Yes. And by the way, I think this is uh, one of the really quite, you know striking aspects of the book is that it covers really a quite extraordinary long historical uh, period that is from the 17th century uh, up and really into the early Soviet years, if I understand correctly. Uh, And so if it starts in the 17th century, I guess, first of all, why in the 17th century? And and what was confession like before then, to the best of our knowledge?
2: Well, to the best of our knowledge is that instructions for people preparing to confess did not stress self-examination, which isn't even mentioned. Instead, it's regulations considering about how you're supposed to fast, how many full prostrations you're supposed to make, and reminding you not to sleep with your spouse right? Mm-hmm. But um, but there's a great deal of variety. The 17th century, I mean, I started there for several reasons, but above all, because it's at that point that we get a better source base, and mm-hmm. when everything starts to change. Essentially, there are several crises that set off a process that forms like Russian Orthodox confession, as we know it today. The dynastic crisis of the time of troubles from the end of the... Um, 16th century to 1613, when the Romanovs become installed, the Cossack rebellions against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Basically, just as in Western Europe, you got a sense of religious urgency and a hardening of confessional lines during the Reformation, Uh, in Muscovy and among Ruthenian clerics in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they start to emphasize the sacraments in ways very similar to those pursued in the Roman Catholic and Protestant world who had just come out of their own crises. Basically, I got interested in this in the 17th century because that is the point at which czars, as well as hierarchs, start showing an interest in getting their subjects to come to confession and communion more often. And if I could make a sidebar, it actually drives me crazy that the religious history of Europe in most textbooks is still discussed with barely a look over the shoulder at what's happening in Orthodox lands, which the last time I checked are part of Europe.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a really quite striking uh, phenomenon. And I, to the extent that uh, I engage with such things. I also find it frustrating that there's this large segment. And I think maybe partly it was a function, uh, perhaps, of there being a relatively small literature, but it would be false to say that it didn't exist even back decades ago. Uh, all of this was available. There were people, many of them Russian emigres. Uh, I mean, you, you know this much better than I do, who were writing about these things. And for anybody who had uh, any curiosity about it, they certainly uh, could have learned more about it. And that actually links to Uh, another question that I wanted to ask, which in in, in some ways you've already begun to answer, because it seems to me that one theme of your book is precisely linking the Russian experience to broader patterns in European history. And you've you've addressed that uh, with regard to the 17th century. Maybe you'd want to say more, but I suppose I would ask, when do we see convergences and when are divergences more prominent? And I suppose as a sort of function of that, What does it mean or how does it matter uh, for Russia that Russia was aligned with Europe at particular moments or not aligned with Europe at particular moments?
2: Okay, well, one of my goals, in fact, I would say my mission in life is to put the Russian Orthodox experience back into the broad pattern of European history. So. To put it in other words, this is like the anti-Huntington, anti-any attempt to say that over here we have the West and over there we have this exotic Eastern Russia. Mm -hmm. No, just no. So I'm actually also anti-Slavophile. I do see Russia and Orthodoxy as being part of the European continuum and being part of the Christian continuum. So I wanted to write the Russian experience of confession into the broader history of confession. And the 17th century um, is obviously one such point of contact because Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox nations are all facing challenges to unity. And what's interesting here, though, is um, like the differences in approach and the crucial point at which Russia on the one hand and present day Belarus and Ukraine then in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth come together because they're all going through the same thing in the sense that they're part of the broad European tendency to religious unification, social discipline and control. But basically what the Ukrainians do is to rewrite the various versions of the Orthodox Confession, trying to streamline it along Roman Catholic lines. And the 1646 Trebnik, or the service book, of Metropolitan Petro-Mohila, which Patriarch can adopts to Russian Practice. They actually take some phrases directly from the Latins, for example, saying to the sinner, go and sin no more, um, insisting that the penitent stand um, and the father confessor sit. Most interestingly, the wording of the absolution formula is changed from the original one used elsewhere in Orthodoxy, which ends with the words, may God forgive you, to ending one that gives more power to the priest. I forgive you and absolve you. So basically Patriarch Nikon in Russia is acting like those Roman Catholic reformers who attempted to impose a uniform confession right while rejecting other even non-heretical versions and he's acting like the Anglicans with their exclusionary approach to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. So the 17th century, like I, I really want to stress this because so often people have the idea like, oh, it all like Westernization starts with Peter being like Europe starts with Peter. And in fact, you could make the case that it's in the 17th century, um, czars and patriarchs have already begun attaching greater importance to the sacraments of confession and communion. Whereas when people who oppose the reforms um, called the old believers are labeled schismatics at a council in 1666, by the way, like what a great apocalyptic year, 1666. Um, When old belief is labeled as a schism, confession also takes on an additional practical role. It defines who is Orthodox and who isn't. So when we look at confession, the period that so many people still see as being like, oh, all men with beards and robes, i.e. not like Europe, is actually very much like Europe. Whereas the period that people see being where Russia is like becoming more like Europe, they think under Peter the Great, if we look at confession, maybe
0: not so much.
1: How oh, interesting! I I have to say that I share your uh, your interest and curiosity. Although I'm far from an expert in in that in that era of the 17th century, I think it's really important, and I think it's really quite striking that, I suppose, in some sense, it in some ways it makes sense that precisely because uh, Russia was a, a Christian country, albeit an Orthodox one, that the religious uh, the religious collection connections would be the ones that would foster. Westernization, perhaps if we can if we can use that term in the first instance. Uh, yet it also seems striking because it would seem as though there's also this sort of image I think of uh, of Russians having their own conception of Orthodox Christianity as being so distinct and so uh, opposed, or maybe distinct is a better way, uh, with respect to the Western Christian confessions. But I find it really interesting that precisely it's precisely in this realm, and less so, although maybe increasingly in other realms, sort of more neutral culturally neutral realms like technology, perhaps, where things are happening as well. Uh, I'm wondering if we might actually go back to an issue that you had actually begun to talk about when I had asked uh, about uh, the kinds of things that we know that people said during confession, Uh, and you mentioned that there's only so much we we know about that, Um, but it does seem to me that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that there are important differences uh, in your account based on uh, gender that is between men and women and between people of different social orders and classes. And so I'm, I'm wondering to what extent was confession a broadly shared experience across these differences and when and for what reasons do those differences become really important and even critical?
2: Okay. Okay. Um- well, it depends if you want to like which uh which demographic category do you want to take first? Um, class, gender, etc. It's All up right. to you. Well, okay. Like, um, another thing that drives me crazy is that like up until recently, people have assumed, I mean, this is like gross generalization, but still, in looking at Russia, in looking at things like confession. People have looked mostly at elite men, but obviously elite men do not represent Russian elite experience and culture as a whole. So what's funny is that uh, if, if let's say, all right, so right, l- let's think about class until the middle of the 19th century. It's easier to track the elites and the military. So they are the ones who are going most. And that's interesting, right? Because people sort of think, oh, okay, 18th century, when elite men start shaving, women start showing more of their chests in public, blah, 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 Freemasonry, etc." So people tend to think that the 18th century is when the upper classes start becoming more secular, whereas in fact, in Russia, in the 18th century... It's the elites, the people who can be observed, who are going to confession and communion the most.
1: How interesting.
2: Yeah, like they're going to confession and communion more often than the average peasant. It's only in the second half of the 19th century, and if you're interested, we can talk about why. It's only at that point that annual confession and communion reach down to people from every class. And the things that actually keep rural people away, and again, this isn't obvious because everyone tends to think, oh, okay, peasants go to confession and communion most often. But think about how far your church is located. The things that keep rural people away are distance and especially having to work away from their assigned parish, especially men who have to travel for hunting or fishing or log hauling or mining or any kind of work that involves time away from home. So basically, places like Archangel are the perfect storm of distance with many men away at sea for eight months straight, weather and a proportion of old believers. Later in the 19th century, uh, this also means anyone who has to work in factories far away from home. You're far away from your assigned parish, which is where you're supposed to go. To confession and communion. So the negative impact of factory work in long distance would become stronger in the 19th century. But gender, um, so I think that's sort of enough for class for the moment, but gender is also interesting because as in the rest of Europe, in Russia, women of all classes go more often than men. And this, you know, whether elite women or young mothers on pilgrimage, bringing their babies to confession with them. Now, literate women, this is also fascinating, are more likely to turn the experience of confession and penance into a form of private literary production, Hmm. as opposed to social critique, the way that elite men do. Now, What does this mean, literary production? Well, it means, for example, uh, texts and instructions aimed at their children preparing for the all-important first confession. It can mean written confessions, even by barely literate women. Basically, sacramental confession became a part of a textual process of Russian women's reading, life writing, uh, life narration to a far greater degree than that of uh, elite men. Even young women are far less likely to reject confession than are young men. And if we're going to talk about age, old people in general, but especially old women, were far more likely to go to confession than any other demographic.
1: Oh, interesting. You you mentioned in uh, responding that there was uh, an element of a change over time, and you've you've discussed some of it. I'm wondering if you might even want to go further into that, and maybe as, a, uh, as an addendum to that question, it seems to me that in your story, the reigns of particular czars and emperors have very important implications for confession. And oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could talk more about of the, uh, the most important Russian rulers for confession, for the development of confession. I think that would be really illuminating.
2: Gladly. Let's name names, Paul.
1: <laughs> oh, let's do that.
2: Okay, so first, Peter the Great. He's the obvious example because it's in his reign that confession becomes a legal requirement. Shirkers of confession, by the way, I love that word, shirkers. Yeah, Um, they, they have to pay extra taxes. But of course, most infamously, the 1722 supplement to the spiritual regulation requires priests to report to secular authorities any unrepented treason they hear at confession, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, in other words, are you planning to kill the czar asking for a friend? Um, And if you say, yeah, I am, and no, I don't think it's bad, and yeah, I'm still going to do it, um, then in theory, the priest is supposed to turn you in. So, to many historians and theologians and critics of Russian Orthodoxy, it's this breaking of the confessional seal that, like, damns Peter as embodying, you know, the... Uh, you know, secularization, the submission of the Orthodox Church to the emperor, the beginning of the churches serving as the handmaiden of the state. But I want to say, like, yes, but no. I mean, like, yes, the supplement to the spiritual regulation is an uncanonical problem, no question. The confessional seal is broken explicitly and deliberately. But let's not forget that this comes not only from Peter, but also his new ally among Ukrainian bishops found Perkel Foliage. And it also is actually put into practice very, very rarely. The next interesting person is Catherine the Second Catherine the Great, who goes way beyond Peter in actually trying to get into people's heads using enlightenment notions and sophisticated psychological techniques as a way of trying to get people to truly acknowledge their guilt. And of course, by closing monasteries on a massive scale makes it harder for Russians to pursue penance as a freely chosen dedicated activity as part of a pilgrimage. But I think the really important person and the most like unsuspected person is Nicholas I.
1: Because, uh, some of us would, would suspect precisely this.
2: Well, see, but Paul, here, <laughs> here I'm preaching to the converted, yes. am I not? Indeed, you
1: 1837, are.
2: 1837, anyone? Yes. Um, coming soon to a bookstore near you. Paul Worth's book. No, Nicholas <laughs> the first. So, so I know you know what I'm talking about. Yes. But for the but for the benefit of uh, you know you know all of you people out there, Indeed,
1: we have to have those people in mind as well. Yes,
2: yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay, for all, for all the rest of you guys, Nicholas the first's reign marks the crown's most direct involvement in the confessions of imperial subjects. And here, like male elites actually get hit the most, like the Decembrists, Pushkin, the guy who shoots the poet, Mikhail Lermatov, even, and sadly, Paul, I found out about this only after I wrote the book, so this is going to be news even for you, even the anarchist Mikhail Bakunin. Two months after Bakunin is arrested, Nicholas says to him, and I'm quoting, write to me as a spiritual son to his father confessor, right? So Bakunin the anarchist has to write his confession to Nicholas I, who describes that confession as highly curious and instructive. Um, But it's also at that point that clerics learn to keep better confession records, start to work more closely together with the police. And so as a result, the mid-19th century is the peak of confession enforcement in Russia when you're most likely to be thrown into a monastery for like having shirked confession and communion. Oh yeah, well, go into a monastery for a few months, You know, think about what you're doing, then go to confession and communion, and then you can come home. But all of this changes in the reign of Alexander II. And he's really the last person at which the Romanovs personally become important, because from him on, rulers stop like caring. They stop personally enforcing whether people are going. And the church starts to emphasize encouragement. As opposed to discipline, and you know what? Like, guess what? The carrot works better than the sit, than, than the stick. Shocker! The late nineteenth century becomes a golden age of confession, mm. and it's at this point that confession actually enters Russian literature in a meaningful way. Like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Yeskov, they all talk about confession in different mm. ways. So. Um, You know, there are charismatic priests like Father John of Kronstadt and Father Valentin and who start experimenting with different kinds of confessions. And they basically show that that there actually is a real hunger for more meaningful confessions and a closer uh, spiritual father-spiritual child relationship at the parish level, as well as at the monastery. So those are the rulers, I would say, in the Russian case, who are the most important.
1: Interesting. Uh, I'd like to take that story a little bit further going into the early 20th century. But before, because you have some things to say, I think, on the revolutionary period, especially around 1905 (laughs) and 1917 itself. But before we do that, I'm wondering if maybe uh, based on really everything that you've said so far, what does that account suggest? And in particular, the importance of the rulers? What does this suggest about the relationship and maybe the changing relationship between religious and secular authority in Russia? Or is it the case that maybe those categories get us off on the wrong foot? Um, and what does this tell us? And you've gestured towards this, this question, but the, the degree of dependence, if you will, of the church on the state, or again, is it misleading uh, to uh, ask the question in those terms?
2: You know, like, I actually really tried to avoid this question for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the things that like I first wanted to do in the book, precisely because everyone's um, sort of thinks, oh, you know, church, state, Russia, to try to do something else. And what did I end up doing? I ended up realizing to my own dismay, that we actually cannot avoid the religious secular question. So since you ask, um, that the categories are not ideal, but they're still useful. And I think that we can be generous and like in thinking about compulsion, we can say like, okay, compulsion brought more people to confession and communion than, than it might have otherwise. And that's basically the point of the Orthodox Church. Whatever Mm -hmm. it takes. So the church is willing to work with the state authorities for its own purposes. And the numbers do seem to back them up in the sense that by the start of the 20th century, for most people, for most Orthodox Christians in the Russian Empire, confession and communion have become part of what everyone does during Lent. And in fact, the statistics in the Russian Empire are the highest in Europe. But let's not forget, people are also having to go in the sense that you have to go to confession and communion to get your high school diploma. You have to do it as part of uh, certifying your business in any given year. You have to go to confession and communion before you can get married. You, when you get arrested for anything, the first question is, when did you last go to confession? Right. So mm-hmm. so if, 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 we're, if it's, like, required to that degree, how much are the statistics actually worth? And, um, like, they're worth something, but how much? So instrumentalization, I think, is a problem. People in the church see it. And we can actually see this very clearly. When, for example, the Decemberists who um, rebel in 1825, they're still willing to ask for confession and communion of their own volition, right? So Decemberists, some Decemberists actually ask for confession and communion in 1825. They still want it. They still see it as having some inherent worth. Whereas by the late 1870s, we see terrorists actually refusing confession and communion mm, before they hang. Like for them Refusing confession becomes a political statement mm-hmm. against both of the state authorities and the state church.
1: How interesting! Yeah, uh, no, re- this is really this is really great. Um, I want to maybe take up uh, building on that to some extent, but also going back to the question about uh, the different social orders and uh, the gender question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing that I think is really uh, remarkable uh, about your book is that you You do take into account that uh, Russia is a multi-ethnic country. And Absolutely. there are lots of people in Russia who uh, do not confess orthodoxy, and therefore these particular questions don't have any direct relevance for them. Right. But there are a fair number of orthodox people who are not Russian. They were convert communities or Georgians or uh, uh, Moldovans, etc. And I'm wondering what uh, confession, to the extent that your research has revealed this, what did it mean for these... Uh, non-Russian Orthodox people.
2: Right. Well, um, you, you know that I'm a little abashed about talking to converts, to you, because you've done so much work on the conversion of Muslims to Orthodoxy in the Russian Empire. And actually, I had a much bigger section in my book about this. And one of the reviewers. Actually said, you know, Paul Worth has done this more extensively. So why don't you just leave it
1: out? Well, I can't say that confession <laughs> was very prominent. It, it seems yeah. to be that confession was precisely going back to your term shirkers. It right. became one of the ways that uh, religious and secular authorities could identify those individuals and perhaps communities that had fallen into what they called apostasy. In other words, if they had not gone to right. communion f- for the course of two or three years, uh, that was a clear sign that there was uh, that there was a problem there. Uh, but that's probably the extent of the research that I've done on confession specifically. So I wish that that, that reviewer had not necessarily written that. But, tell us, <laughs> tell, us, but well, tell us then a little bit about what you might have said in the book um, had that reviewer not said that.
2: Oh, this is the old coulda, shoulda, woulda moment, right? Yeah. Well, OK, among, among other things, I, I, I would have said um, that language was actually a major issue, obviously, because if you have Mm -hmm. priests who like literally, uh, if if, if you have priests and parishioners who literally do not speak the same language and don't understand one another, um, there's only so much that, that you can do. Um, Obviously enforcement is much more um, intense among the formerly Muslim community, and there's a reason, by the way, that so many of my cases come from Kazan, mm-hmm. a, an area in which you have worked yourself, um, the present-day capital of Tatarstan. But I would actually like to talk a little bit about people like the Georgians, yeah. because, the, because the Georgians are actually the most obvious case of difference. There's a clear difference in language and an alphabet. And there is an older, a far older Orthodox Christian tradition among the Georgians than there is among the Slavs. So I was actually really disappointed to learn how little work has been done on confession in the Georgian tradition. I'm afraid the Russians don't come off very well in this story because the like when they first encountered Georgians, when they started going there in the 17th century, they are struck by the Georgians aren't going to confession and communion as much as the Russians are, so the Russians say, and they try to get the Georgians to go more often. Now we can, you know, I can say, okay, the Georgians are being besieged by the Ottomans and the Persians. They've got other things on their minds. But what's really depressing is that 10 years after the Russians occupied and annexed Eastern Georgia in 1801, and then the Georgian church loses its autocephaly, the Georgian liturgy is suppressed and replaced with church Slavonic. Mm-hmm. Most of the bishops sent to Georgia are ethnic Russians. Right so I actually think it would be fascinating to look at Georgian Orthodoxy on the ground in the 19th century. But that would involve knowing Georgian, which I don't. Right. Like I was hoping to find that that, that other people had done some work on this and I could incorporate the story. But there's actually been regarding confession very little. So instead I stuck to those regions of the empire that spoke and wrote in Slavic languages. And so the lands of present day Ukraine, I think are especially interesting because in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, the Ukrainians consistently go to confession and communion more often than any other nationality in the Russian empire, including Russians. But they are also, the most likely to complain about how priests do confession, and they're the most likely to see confession as their right, right? R-I-G-H-T. Yeah. <laughs> um, like they so, in other words, Ukrainians have to be compelled far less than anyone else, but they also are much more inclined to like own it than other nationalities. Yeah. And I'm afraid I have very little to say about Bol- Moldovans. Like Jews who convert are an interesting case because in most cases they are boys who are drafted into the Russian army and at some point in the reign of Nicholas I there's actually some attempt made to try to get them to convert. They're also as as you've noted with Muslims the issue is when they leave the army they think, oh, well, I guess we can go back to being Jews again. But no, (laughs) because um, once you've gone to confession and communion, you have to keep going. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the reign of Alexander II that the state basically says like, okay, it was a mistake to convert these guys in the first place. And um, we will let them quote unquote relapse.
1: Yeah. What I take from this, I think are two really interesting topics. Well, maybe one is just an observation you've, you've essentially made it. And that is that orth- orthodoxy in Russia, as opposed to Russian orthodoxy, you know, is, I mean, Russian orthodoxy right. itself is, isn't it is an internally diverse sort of phenomenon based on regional and social sort of di- differentiations, but that when we talk about orthodoxy in Russia, as opposed to strictly Russian orthodoxy, we have to have in mind all of these various communities that, can be uh, regarded in some cases as provisionally Russian, but it's a bit of a stretch or just entirely not Russian at all. And the other is, you know, going back to the points you were making about the 17th century, it seems to me a really interesting thing to study would be uh, having a better sense over the course of time of the the boundary, the religious boundary between Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity, which of course fluctuates, changes. And at some points it's, um, it's, to a certain extent erased. And it seems to me like this is, it's precisely over these kinds of questions that one could do uh, that kind of research. We'll have to hope that people do that in the future.
2: Yeah, I really hope so too. Yeah.
1: I'd like to take up the question that I referred to earlier, having to do with basically the revolutionary era. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the revolution of 1905. And you also have at least a few things to say about the fate of confession, if I can put it in those terms, after the Bolsheviks come to power. What happens with, uh, in revolutionary Russia, if we understand that as a period of time extending over a decade
2: yeah absolutely so like it actually it starts happening a little bit earlier with industrialization Mm -hmm. and modernization when people start to use the rhetoric of the labor movement in their petitions to church authorities against parish priests so on the one hand you have a sense of workers rights and entitlements it's like dude i only have a day off you know Why should I, you know, why should I take my day off to fulfill my confession and communion requirement? So this is happening. And at the same time, you have priests feeling their own newfound sense of dignity. It's hard to reconcile both senses of entitlement. But really, this comes to a head in 1905. So what happens in 1905? You've got the first empire-wide strike in history. You have a revolution, um, a full-on, full-scale revolution the language of rights, freedoms, free thinking, you know, strikes, riots, burnings of estates, all of this affects confession. In April 1905, there's a manifesto on freedom of religious conscience. Um, in October 1905, it's the end of unlimited autocracy. So basically, essentially, people taste freedom and bishops start to worry that young people especially those who are working in factories are growing cold to confession and communion now this although this like really freaks bishops out in 1906 and 1907 once the revolution is put down and it's like everything is back to normal the overall rates of confession and communion recover but this is like the first warning sign that there is like stuff simmering that's just waiting for a chance to get out. 1917 is that moment. I mean, now, of course, 1917 comes after the Great War, when things are in chaos for their own reasons. Um, but in 1917, <laughs> the funny thing is that like at first it's not obvious because the February Revolution, prompting Nicholas II to abdicate, it happens in the first weeks of Lent, when many people, including most regiments, have already done their confession and communion. So like most people, anyone who would have gone normally during the first few weeks of Lent, the way that most soldiers did, they would have gone already before the revolution was gathering steam. Mm -hmm. So it's only uh, at the end of 1917 that things start becoming obvious. And of course, like, let's face it, after Easter 1917, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Russian um, population as a whole, has more things to worry about than are people going to confession. I mean, like, come on, there's a the collapse of law and order. There's no money. The 15 million men called to the front want to come home. Um, there's already, you know, lists of clerics who are lynched, um, co- um, commemorated as new martyrs. So, By 1918, the sacrament had functioned partly as a sign of collective belonging, and it falls apart. So it's actually like a really interesting moment. What happens to confession when the old order is gone, and it is gone? Like, there's three different approaches. One is to link traditional Lenten confession and communion to current events, This was the tack taken by um, Patriarch Tichan, the newly elected Patriarch Tichen, because of course one of the things that the revolution did was to make it possible finally for there to be a church council that would elect a patriarch. So after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that pulls Russia out of war in March 1918, Patriarch Tichin says, We call you not to rejoice because of the peace treaty, but to repent bitterly and pray before the Lord. The time of repentance has come the holy days of great Lent. So he's calling to people to cleanse themselves from their sins, come to their senses, and stop looking at one another like enemies. So, right, so like a direct attempt to try to link the class and other warfare that's going on, to link them to traditional Lenten um, Lenten pen, um, penance. The second approach is to be like even more hardline than before. Um, this is the path taken by Metropolitan Antoni Kropovitsky, who actually got the highest popular vote for um, for um, being elected patriarch. But then they, in fact, um, drew lots. He thought that the problem was that uh, before the revolution, yes, there were many problems, but the biggest problem was not enough discipline. So it says essentially he says that we have to that the problem. Is like We don't have to be kinder, gentler. We have to be like more tough. That's the only way. The third approach was something really new, which is general confession, something that had been introduced in the army and a few other places during the war. Now, it might not be obvious what that is because it's not actually a confession. It's like a collective act of penance, like the act of penitence as practiced by contemporary Lutherans and Anglicans, Kind of like what the Roman Catholic start of Mass is like after Vatican II, which is to say, instead of individual confessions, priests address the flock to waken their sense of sin, then ask the kinds of questions rhetorically they might ask um, at a regular private confession, and then as the people like think about this silently and repent silently. The priest reads the prayer of solution, of absolution and everyone who wants to can commune. Now, this was initially a huge success. And actually what's interesting about it is that this was one of the few religious innovations that was not rejected by the Russian Orthodox flock. Mm -hmm. Like When they were given a chance, many of them voted with their feet and let it go without communion. Basically, when they were given a chance in the first years of revolution to go to communion without a prior private confession, let alone fasting and church attendance, many priests and parishioners took it. Now, This didn't happen overnight, and some people, some historians claim that the reaction in favor of general confession swung back. But basically, we have no way of knowing how confession would have evolved in Russia in relatively peaceful circumstances, because um, because what we got instead was the aggressive anti-religious persecution of the 1930s. And so partly because of that, partly because of the massive persecutions of priests, general confession basically became the norm for the rest of the entire Soviet period.
1: Well, oh, great. I, I think this conversation has demonstrated to me, certainly, that uh, confession really is uh, a window onto, uh, a key window, I think, as you say at one point on to church, state, and society. Uh, I've learned an awful lot in talking to you. And I want to thank you for uh, speaking on the New Books Network. I want to remind our readers that uh, the book uh, that we're talking about is Good for the Souls, A History of Confession in the Russian Empire by Oxford University Press, published here in 2021. And the author of that book is Dr. Nadiazhda Kizenko at the State University of New York in Albany. And I want to say, Nadia, thank you so much for giving us a really great tour of this important um, sacrament in the Russian empire and really teaching us a lot about uh, Russia uh, from the 17th century into the early 20th.
2: You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And hopefully on another occasion, we can talk about what the practice of confession is in Russia today and what confession might be in Russia in the
1: future. Let's hope so. Uh, Thanks so much. Take care and uh, signing off uh, with the New Books Network.